Today's scripture reading comes from Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 to 31. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is, a sli- she is in slavery with her children. But Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are, in, who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what, what, does this, what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with, with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. We are now continuing on in the series of Galatians, and we're at the end of chapter 4. And at the end of chapter 4, Paul is talking about something a little different. It's an image that he is talking about, some uh, narrative, a picture, a story, if you will. And I want to talk to you about three really quick points. And the three points are, number one, the types of people. Number two, allegory. And number three, grace to the barren. So types, allegory, and grace. And if you shorten that, it's tag, T-A-G. Types of people, allegory, and grace to the barren. And I've recently watched this, um, these videos on Facebook. It's like this upgraded tag where people are doing like parkour and tag at the same time. And they have all these obstacles. And I was thinking just like that, I hope that we today can have an upgraded tag here. Um, a more keen understanding of what Scripture is saying and an upgraded way of perhaps of reading the Bible. Or better put, we can say this way. We can see how Scripture shows us how to read the Bible better. We can see how Scripture shows us how to read the Bible better. And we will see how Paul clearly, biblically contrasts now slavery and freedom And maybe we're not the Judaizers of that day, but it's clear that the law or the concept of the law affects us in various ways, even today, this very moment. So I want to go to my first point, the four types of people. And if we could go to the next slide, I believe these are the four types of people. We have the modern-day Pharisee, which is law-obeying and law-relying. Then we have the sad panda, which is the law disobeying and the law relying. And on the bottom left, we have relative superiority, which is law disobeying and not law relying. And finally, we have grace dependent, uh, the law obeying and not law relying. 
And so we want to go to the next slide. And the first one we want to talk about is the modern day Pharisee, which is the law obeying and the law relying. And I have a picture for us to look at. And what do I mean by Pharisee? Pharisees were religious teachers on morality and how to follow the law in Jesus' time. And by subjecting people to like a whole slew of smaller laws, 600 plus, they were able to hold their head up high because they believed they kept them. And that was the Pharisee of Jesus' time. And we have modern day Pharisees even here who are the modern day Pharisees. I believe they are the people that go to church a lot. In fact, they are the ones you will hear say, I go to church so much, I think I go too much. As if they were doing a favor to God by going to church. And become, we become smug because surely by going to church so much, we are right with God. But deep down, we have lots of insecurity because no one can be truly sure that they are living up to the standard, even if it's a standard they have made. You become super sensitive and actually angry if your prayers or you think your prayers don't get answered. In fact, many have come up with this goal around by never ever praying deep prayers by never ever praying risky prayers. This type is the modern day Pharisee. I wanna go on to the next one, and the next one is the sad panda. And the sad panda is the law disobeying and law relying. I have a picture for you here as well. And this type of person has a strong sense of works righteousness, meaning the knowledge of what is right and wrong, but they are not living it. As a result, they seem more humble than the modern day Pharisee, seem more humble because they are actually guilt ridden. They know what's right and they don't do it. They know what's right and they don't do it, so how do you cope? You cope by either going to church and staying on the periphery, the edges, and you escape right away. Or you become, if you, when you want to become more involved, you put down others by saying and thinking, well, I'm not as bad as them. These guys are far more worse. You know what? Of course I can become a leader in the church. I can become a deacon. I can become an elder. I can become whatever because I may be bad. I admit I'm bad, but they are way worse than me. And so that is the sad panda. I actually met a man in his 50s. <clears throat> and what was interesting is he struck up a conversation. He knew that I was a pastor. And I don't know, because I was a pastor, I'm younger than him, but he wanted to start to share his life with me. And he started sharing about his life. And he's a businessman. And he started sharing about all the crooked people, all the corrupt people, morally corrupt people he has to deal with and the people that he dealt with in his line of business. And then he says, when I get to heaven, hopefully, hopefully, I would have done enough good things 
so they let me in. He said, I'm not a good guy, but hopefully I would have done enough for Jesus to let me in. And when I heard that, I was incredibly sad, and I said, it's by grace alone that we enter into the presence of Christ. Grace alone gets us to heaven. He said, yes, yes, I know. It's because of God's grace I get to go to heaven. But I hope to have done enough good things so they let me in. So I was like, what? I, I, just, I just said, what? What's going on here? <clears throat> and so this is the sad panda. With law disobeying, but law relying. And let's go to the next slide. And there's relative superiority. I call it this because these people have relative superiority and they are law disobeying and not law relying. And we go to that next picture. This type of person has thrown off the shackles of God's law and sometimes even the notion of God itself. They are intellectually relativistic. They believe the world would be a better place if everyone could just coexist in peace by not talking about the law so much and focus on love. You may see them with a coexist bumper sticker with dreams of one day winning the Nobel Peace Prize with their amazingly ingenious belief system. The only thing is that while they believe themselves to be more tolerant, some are not, they have a strong sense of liberal self-righteousness. And what happens then is we have this great fear that comes inside of us when something threatens that sense of righteousness. Eventually, we would have to come to the conclusion that to be tolerant, we must be intolerant to those that do not subscribe to our ways. And we see this literally playing out in our society, in our political systems, in the places we work this very day. The conclusion that we would have to come to is that to be tolerant, we must be intolerant to those that do not subscribe to our ways. It's a re- and then this is what Dave Barry, he wrote this. He said, it's a real smug, self-righteous punk kid saying nobody has the right to tell him what to do and how dare you for putting up a sign that says I can't go on your property. And so this would be the relative superior person. And let's go finally to that fourth one, the grace dependent. The grace dependent are the law obeying, but not law relying. People that have received grace upon grace. And this says in John chapter 1, verse 16, this, it's from his fullness that we all received Grace upon grace. It's from his fullness that we all received grace upon grace. And this is an incredibly, incredibly deep word. And I hope that we can reflect on it because it's from his fullness that we have all received grace upon grace. And we go to the next slide. And this type of person is the Christian who understands the gospel and is living out of the freedom it brings. They do obey the law. But the source of their obedience is this grateful joy that comes out from the knowledge of their sonship. They are more sympathetic than the modern-day Pharisee. 
they are more confident than the sad panda, and they are more tolerant than the person who has relative superiority. But to be honest, most Christians struggle to live out this gospel-centric, grace-dependent life. They tend to see that the world is in either one of the three lenses. And as more this happens in our lives, the more we see through the other three lenses, not the fourth, to that degree is how spiritually poor you are. To the degree that you see yourself out of the one of the three first lenses is how spiritually poor you are. And there is a key to understanding this. And the scripture shows us a better way still. And we could take that off. And we're going to go to the second point. And the second point is allegory. Allegory. In verse 21, Paul is saying, you want to be under, under the law? Do you know what that means? He's basically saying, if you knew what that meant, you wouldn't want it. Many years ago, 2004, there was a dumpling scandal. I don't know if many of you might be familiar. It actually transferred from Korea even to Flushing. There was this really famous little dumpling corner. It was tiny. It's, uh, it's like even not, like maybe the, the square footage of that piano was tiny, but they would serve dumplings, and people would love it. Dumpling was a huge rage in Korea, and the scandal broke out. These are actually garbage dumplings. Not like these, gar- these dumplings are garbage, but literally they would stuff dumplings with garbage and they would sell it. So they were dubbed garbage dumplings. They had rotten radishes and things like that and they would sell it. It was a huge scandal. And that place in Flushing immediately closed down. Um, there were like two big places in Korea that were caught and then the KFDA, the Korean FDA, uh, would put them on blast, um, but there were like maybe even 600 smaller places doing the same. Paul is saying, if you really knew what was in these dumplings, you would not eat it. <laughs> you want to go to Abraham? Fine. You want to say you are law-abiding Abrahamic descendants? And it's fine. He goes, let's go to Abraham. And he does, and he uses this story, and he uses the word allegoromena, which we get the word allegory from. So are we to take the whole story of the Abrahamic narrative allegorically? I mean, it's literally translated allegory. And of course, the answer is no, because how of even Paul refers back to the literal commands of Scripture in verse 30 and even in verse 21. But verse 24, this is how the ESV translates it. Now this may be interpreted, may be interpreted allegorically. He's not saying it's okay to look at it and if you had all these other options of picking which interpretation you wanted. He is saying specifically there is another way to look at it because it was also meant to be looked at this way. You can see it in Scripture because it is what scripture is actually saying so what is it that paul is finding in the bible that he expects us to see as well and there is a pattern here in the text and the pattern is a pattern of pairs 
Abraham had two sons, one from a free woman and one from a slave woman. One was born through a promise and one was born through human efforts. We take this pair and we are to see how this allegorically applies to us. We have two pairs and we have one pair, but this, in this pair we have two women and the two women are two covenants. There is a consistent pattern of pairs in this manner that continues to show up in scripture. In verse 24, he says, one is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. And if you're really reading this carefully with me, you would think, wait, what? The law was given through Moses in Mount Sinai but it wasn't Hagar's kid that got it. It was Ishmael, Moses, who was an Israelite, who was a Jew who got the law. The Jews are the ones that got the law from Mount Sinai. It's the people of Abraham, then Isaac, then all the way down to Moses who got the law from Mount Sinai. But then he clarifies in verse 25. He says, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. And then you see there is another pair that we have to notice. There are actually two Jerusalems. There is one here, the present-day Jerusalem, and the readers of the letter to the Galatians should know this because they must have known this after all the memorizing and the reading of Scripture that the law required that they wanted to subscribe to. The Jerusalem in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the Jerusalem that is damned, the Jerusalem that is morally bankrupt, the Jerusalem that has the wrath of God on it, Isaiah 64.10, Jerusalem is a desolation. That's the present-day Jerusalem. That is the covenant in Hagar. And then there's the other side, the picture of the promise. In Hebrews 12, 22, where it says that there is a heavenly Jerusalem. The Jerusalems that the Israelites, that the Jewish people were waiting for, finally coming down. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, there's the pair. You know, when we talked about these four types of people, it's basically one lens, the three people before the fourth. How did David please God? And then if you look at it from the first three lenses, you will say the law. He did it by following God's law and his statutes. How did Moses please God? And if you look at it through this lens, excuse me, you would say the law. How did Abraham please God? Well, I mean, Abraham was before Moses, so you can't really say the law, can you? Except... I found it. Genesis chapter 26, it says, God says, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Abraham must have had some kind of revelation of the law, a special revelation just for Abraham. So that's what he did. He followed the law. And then you go back further and you go, how did Enoch, because we did Genesis, Enoch, Genesis chapter 5, how did he please God? Well, the law too, right? Law. It has to be the law. 
And it says in the Bible, he walked with God. So to walk with God must be, he must have been keeping the law. That's the lens that we've been given, that we see everything through the law. And what happens when we see everything through the law, we start reading the Bible in this lens of the law. We take the Bible, and as we're reading it, we take the law, and that is the filter that we see everything through. And you read the whole Bible through the lens of the law. And then what happens when you read the Bible? And mind you, this is still prevalent today. When we read the Bible through the lens of the law, this is what we come to. If you do this, then you're blessed. If you do this, you're not blessed, you're cursed. If you do this, then God is happy. If you do this, then God is not happy. If you do this, God is blessed. Uh, you're blessed. If you do this, you're cursed. Blessed, damned. Blessed, cursed. And this is how we see the Bible. This is actually called Deuteronomistic theology. And, how, and this can only get us in trouble. Why? Because in this Deuteronomistic theology, we have to see that it, people read Deuteronomy, right? It, but if you look at Deuteronomy, how does Deuteronomy end? How does even the book of Deuteronomy end? The book of Deuteronomy ends by Moses not even getting into the promised land. Following the law, doing everything that he thought he had to do. It's Moses, you guys. It's not just some schmo named Eugene Kim. It's Moses following the law. Even he couldn't get into the promised land. So if we see it through the law of the lens of the law, then we are in trouble because even Moses couldn't get into the promised land. In the very least then, we should be able to see that the law shows us that it doesn't work. The law may be good, but it doesn't transform your heart. The law may be, wow, helpful and a good guide, but it is not powerful enough to save. And that is the other part of this pair that we're being shown in Scripture. There is another covenant, not the law covenant, not Hagar's covenant, but the Abrahamic covenant that is the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is powerful enough to save. That is the covenant of promise. In this way, every single part of the Bible we have to see doesn't point to law. It points to Christ. And it could be direct prophecies. Like it says, he will be born in a manger. He will be this, he will be that. There are direct prophecies, even in Genesis chapter 3, 15. You're going to be born of a woman. And these direct prophecies are there leading to Christ. But it could also be historical events that transpired that you have to see. There's a longing in history of all humankind that we want a Messiah. But now we even see allegorically in the patterns that are consistently presented in the Bible that every single thing in the Bible points to Christ. 
the primary difference between the lens of the grace-dependent, the free Christian, and all the rest that we want to receive is in Christ. Christ is the lens that we see the world through and we read the Bible through. Elevating the law to that standard, the lens that we see the world and read the word does not work and it will leave you bankrupt and in wanting. And come to my final point, grace to the barren. Excuse me. Grace to the barren. Paul sees that through this lens, it is truly the gospel theme that runs throughout the whole Bible. That's why he quotes Isaiah 54. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. You know, when this prophecy was spoken, the Jews, the Israelites, they were in captivity in Babylon. This was 1,200 years after Abraham and 600 years before Paul wrote this letter. And the remaining Israelites must have thought that their life, as they knew it, was over. There was no hope. There was no way they could be restored again. The nation that they took so much pride in, the Israelite nation, was a failure. It crumbled. It was crushed. But God said through Isaiah, in your most helpless state, I will show you grace upon grace. Those who rely on their own strength are too busy relying on themselves. But it is I, the Lord, that will make you great. So great that the children you have will be even more numerous than those that are strong. The passage in Isaiah was pointing back to Genesis 16 where God looks down on one beautiful and fertile woman and the other an old and barren one and chooses to save the world through the barren one. And through the child of the woman that was old and barren, the entire world would be blessed. And that is grace. You want to know the power of this grace? Sarah was a 90-year-old woman who was barren all her life. And God is trying to show his children And he is telling his children, if I can do that for Sarah, I can do that for you. Now, it may not look exactly the same. And I hope not. I hope no one here has to wait till they're 90 to have a kid. But it presents itself maybe in a different manner. Mary had Jesus and she was a virgin. The scripture is saying the gospel is a gospel of grace for the barren. He was showing the Galatians, and yes, you were born from grace. You aren't here because you were strong and you had fertile parents. In fact, you could not handle and live up to the law when you put up that law as a lens to live by. You were born from grace. 
I would even testify that I am a child of grace. <clears throat> As a kid, uh, I got into this program. I guess, I guess I was smart. As a kid, not anymore. My mom says it's too much video games. Anyway, but as a kid, I, I guess I was smart, and I, I entered into this program, and this program was called TAG, T-A-G, like our three points. And it was short for the talented and gifted. And we would just do puzzles all day, and it was fun, because the puzzles were easy. Not anymore. Don't give me puzzles. Um, <clears throat> my dad thought I was like this genius. They had high hopes for me. But as I grew older, everything that I did was late. It was late. I should have gotten into this high school early, but I didn't get into the high school early. I got into the high school eventually, but I got in a year later than everybody else. I should have graduated college on time or early, but I didn't. I actually, gradu I actually went to college five years. I changed my major and I changed all these things, so I didn't even graduate on time. I should have been a pastor early. God had put a call in my life when I was a kid. I remember still someone up there, I don't remember who it was, someone said, who wants to be a pastor? And I just stood up. I was like, I want to be a pastor. And I was in elementary school. And throughout my life, I said, I take that back, God, please, please. I take that back. And it took me 10 years until I became a pastor. I should have gotten married early. And those of you that know, I did not. I got married way late, later than 99%, I don't know, whatever it is. But here I am standing before you saying God's grace in my life when I was weak is more than I could have ever imagined in my strongest time. In the highest place I could have put myself, God's grace brought me higher. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. By any standard, my life and the things that I accomplished was late. Look at my life. Ask me. By any standard that was late and incomplete, but there is one standard that says that one is perfect. And that standard is the standard of grace. That's the grace that we have been given as Christ's children. That's the grace upon grace that we've been given. And there's a great acrostic for grace that I want us to remember. Not just tag, but today is a day of acrostics apparently. But there's a great acrostic for grace that I hope that we can remember. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. There's a saying that we have in the world, and the saying is better late than never, but grace turns that around. And it says, better grace than any other way. And that's what we've been given. So he's telling the Galatians, stop looking at yourselves through the lens of the law. It only kills. It fails you. Can't you see that it's miserably failed time after time after time? But you are not children of the law. You are children of grace. And that's who you are. Better grace than any other way. And I hope that we, as a church, as people of God, can see ourselves that way. 
That's what we've been given. Glory be to God and God alone. Glory be to Christ Jesus. Let's pray.